Hello and welcome to the next episode of How Good It Is, the show that takes a closer look at songs from the rock and roll era and we check out some of the stories behind those songs and the artists who made them famous. My name is Claude Cole and I'm, I'm still a little sick here. D- does, it make, does it make me sound sexy-er? Oh, okay. Remember to check out the website, howgooditis.com, and the Twitter and the Instagram, and of course the Facebook page, which you can find over there, right there, at facebook.com slash ow, how good it is pod. Hey, I have not talked about Podcast Republic in a bit, and it is high time I did, because it is, it is so packed with features that you just keep on finding them. Did you know that you can play use Podcast Republic to play shows at a specific time? Yes, you can use it as an alarm clock, or you can use the sleep timer function so that when this show puts you out, it'll shut itself off. And something I discovered recently is that the car mode is gesture-operated. I mean, you know, you put it into car mode, and the display turns into big, easy-to-find buttons, but you can customize it so that you shake your device a specific way and it controls playback without even opening your phone. How about that? Podcast Republic is honest to goodness. The only podcast you will need. I have been using it for close to, I don't know, five years now, I think. Long before I had a show for them to feature me on. I don't make a dime off of telling you any of this. That's how good it is. You should excuse the expression. Go find it over there in the Google Play Store. Or you can follow the link at my website. I have got an interesting bit of trivia for ye this week. Moby Grape's self-titled debut album from 1967, with its various elements of pop, psychedelia, garage band sound, and maybe even a little bit of country, is nowadays considered one of the best rock albums of the entire 1960s. And to be sure, many artists have covered various tracks from the album, but Moby Grape's poor record sales early on were largely blamed on a specific circumstance surrounding the release of the album's singles, specifically the timing. What was so unusual about that timing? I will have that answer and the story behind it near the end of the show. Oh, before I get started, I should note that this episode was a request that came to me from uh, Jeremiah Coughlin by way of Instagram. Jeremiah is a comedian from the West Coast who has a podcast of his own, along with fellow comic Jake Silberman. It's called Brine Time. It's a, a show that airs uh, from Portland, Oregon, and it is devoted to the Portland Pickles baseball team. And if that doesn't sound like much, well, then you do not know anything about baseball bl- below the major league level, because let me tell you, I live 15 minutes from Camden Yards, home of the Baltimore Orioles, but I travel more than twice that amount of time to see the Aberdeen Ironbirds play because it's just so much fun watching the younger players turn into pros. So I salute you, Brian Time. I salute you, Jeremiah and uh, Jake. Uh, Brian Time is between seasons just now because it is winter, but you can find the show if you do a search for Brian Time Podcast in your Google machine or uh, just go get a link from my website. All right. I have a theory about power ballads, okay? Rock bands like to do power ballads, and I think it's for a number of reasons. I think they like to broaden their appeal, and they certainly their sales numbers. It's an opportunity to perhaps convey something that they consider a little bit profound. Think of like Stairway to Heaven. Maybe it gives the lead singer a chance to lay back a little bit vocally when they're performing in shows. It certainly provides them with the lighters or cell phones in the air moment for the crowd to show tribute, and every rock band has at least one in the repertoire. Aerosmith has Don't Want to Miss a Thing. For Nazareth, it's Love Hurts. 
Poison gave us every rose has its thorn. And of course, Guns N' Roses provided November rain. But once in a while, once in a while, the power ballad has an unfortunate effect on some bands. The song tends to take on greater importance than may have been originally ascribed to it. And then suddenly an artist or a band, they kind of find themselves defined by it. And that can lead to all kinds of identity problems. Michael Bolton was a hard rocker until his cover of Dock of the Bay became a huge adult contemporary hit. Krista Berg was redefined when Lady in Red was a monster hit and became a stable of mobile DJs forever. And do you remember this tune? More Than Words was such a huge departure from Extreme's usual sound that when it started getting airplay, radio stations wouldn't even back announce it because they knew they would get blamed when somebody bought the album expecting more of the same and never mind that the album's title is Porno Graffiti. It's, it's almost like the time I was working in a record store and a sweet little old lady, I swear to God this is true, a sweet little old lady came in asking for an album by guitar god Joe Satriani and it turned out she was buying it for herself, not her grandson because we got to talking about it. Now, in that case, she turned out to be Joe's mother. And if you're listening, Joe, shame on you for making your own mother buy your album. But that one has a, was a happy ending. And in the case of Extreme, it often wasn't. People would buy the album and say, what is this? Bring it back. And I think the same kind of thing happened with Foreigner. Their, their fifth album, The Agent Provocateur, was, in my opinion, it was some pretty solid work, although it took a little bit of a beating in the press. It wasn't their biggest selling album, but it was kind of ambitious with some extra synth and input from the Thompson Twins and, of course, Jennifer Holiday. but we'll get to that in a minute. As I said, it wasn't a huge seller. It was bigger than Head Games, but not as big as four, but it also yielded their only number one hit in multiple nations, and that's the song we're going to talk a little bit about today. Uh, guitarist Mick Jones wrote the song, he says, in the middle of the night. He explained to the website Ultimate Classic Rock that he had been through a divorce and he had met somebody else who he was going to marry, and the band was feeling some of the pressure that comes with being in a band that's expected to sell millions of albums. And around that time, he and lead singer Lou Graham were getting into what he called a Cold War situation. He had just returned to England from New York, and he was just kind of getting back in touch with himself. And so it was a very uh, emotional period for him. So one night, he's up at 3 a.m., and he sat down at the keyboard, and he wrote a little bit of what eventually became I Want to Know What Love Is. He says he knew he had something right away, so he woke up his sleeping fiancé so he could play it for her. At that point, he had a few chords of the intro and the title. And as he told Ultimate Classic Rock, when he told her this title, uh, she didn't take it well. She asked him, what do you mean you want to know what love's in? We're, we're about to get married. But they did get married, so I was suppose he was able to smooth that one over. Now, while the rest of the band had a few suggestions here and there, this was largely Mick Jones' song, which was a departure from their usual pattern, which had Jones and Graham as co-composers on most of their songs. And in fact, they're co-composers on practically everything else. I'm pretty sure everything else, really, on Agent Provocateur. Um, and the story goes that Lou Graham did indeed push back a little bit on I Want to Know What Love Is at first, thinking that it could move the band as a whole into an adult contemporary sound and away from their rock roots. But Jones rationalized it, saying in an interview with Billboard magazine that, hey, 
All of their albums have a couple of ballads on them. So while Graham may have aired his opinion at the time, and given the earlier tension in the band, people started pointing to that as the reason for all the differences that led to Graham later leaving and rejoining the band. And sure enough, Graham did point to that as being one of the reasons he wanted to leave, so he wasn't helping matters any. But in the moment, he said his piece, and they all moved forward. Now, in addition to the basic band, Foreigner also brought in the Thompson Twins to assist with some of the uh, synth work and the backup singing. And Tom Bailey, in particular, gets credited on the album for working on this track. And while that buzzy synthesizer does help with the sound, it still needed something else. Even as he was working on the song with the other band members, Jones began to envision the song as something bigger, trying to find a way to enhance it spiritually. He says he even considered approaching Aretha Franklin to get her to work on it. But, according to an interview with Loudersound.com, Jones said he was having lunch with a guy who ran a gospel music label. He sent over a bunch of albums, and one of them was by the New Jersey Mass Choir. When he heard them, he finally had the finished version in his head. So he drove out to New Jersey. Now, it's not 100% clear where they work out of, but I think it's Newark and he watched them practice, and they were a fresh enough group that they had never worked on a mainstream album before. But he liked them, and he brought them in. Here's the thing. the the Having the New Jersey Mass Choir wasn't quite enough to get the project completed. They needed one more dose of intervention from God. About 30 choir members piled into the Right Track studio in New York City, and they did a few takes, but it still wasn't quite working out, Jones said. In that same interview, he explained that the choir got into a circle, held hands, and recited the Lord's Prayer, and that seemed to do the trick, because he said they managed to nail it the very next take. And by the way, one of the members of that choir was Jennifer Holliday, who helped with the vocal arrangements. Jones said that he was in tears afterward, and it was a very emotional moment for him, in part because his parents were in the studio as well. Jones also said that shortly after they finished the song, he invited Atlantic Records president Ahmet Erdogan into the studio and told him, look, I just want to play you one song and hear what you think. And Erdogan reacted much the same way. He was tearstruck. Jones was floored by this reaction. Hey, this is the guy who discovered Ray Charles and Aretha Franklin. And you know what? I, I buy into that because... When they were touring to support this album, I actually got to go see them. And during the show, they brought out, I don't know if it was the New Jersey Mass Choir, because I was on Long Island for this concert, but it was a choir, and they came out and they sang, and it was definitely a very uplifting moment for everybody at the Jones Beach Theater. It was pretty amazing, let me tell you. And sure enough, the song hit all the right places. It was released uh, in time for Christmas of 1984, just a couple of weeks ahead of the album. And early in January 1985, it knocked Do They Know It's Christmas off the top of the UK singles chart and held that spot for three weeks. In the US, it took a little bit longer to reach the top, but in February, it finally replaced Madonna's Like a Virgin in the top slot. And that makes I Want to Know What Love Is Foreigner's only number one hit in either country. 
It was also number one in Australia, Canada, Ireland, New Zealand, and most of Scandinavia. And it was the number four song for the year 1985 in the U.S., plus number three in Canada for the year. In addition to the album version, which is five minutes and four seconds there and uh, on the single, there's also a 12-inch single with a longer intro and an extended fade-out going to 623. Now, as far as cover versions go, there are a few notable ones. The first came from, we'll go figure, the New Jersey Mass Choir, which released a similar-sounding record in the spring of 1985, right after this version dropped off the charts. And while it didn't chart on the Hot 100, it did see some action on the R&B chart. Australian performer Tina Arena recorded a cover in 1998 that went top 40 in Australia and top 50 across Europe. This version was produced by Mick Jones, who wrote an extended bridge for the song between the second and third choruses. And I'm not sure who's singing backup, but there's a strong resemblance to Lou Graham there, enough that at first I thought he had been sampled. Listen to the extra bridge. Lord, help me to be strong on this road I travel on. When I'm lost and lonely, find me. My journey's just begun, and I'm not the only one. So I wanna know. I wanna know. Yes, I found out. I want you to show me. See, doesn't that guy sound a little bit like Lou Graham? In 2004, country singer Winona Judd released her cover of the song, featuring Jeff Beck playing a pretty bluesy electric guitar and Paul Franklin playing a subtle steel guitar. It's a little overproduced by Narada Michael Walden, but that's pretty much his thing. But I kind of like it. This one went to number 14 on the Billboard Adult Contemporary chart, and it made it to number 15 in Sweden. Well, okay. You can find this one on her album titled What the World Needs Now is Love. Okay, you got to brace yourself just a little bit for this one. Now, while Narada Michael Walden has worked with Mariah Carey, he wasn't present on this 2009 version of the song, which instead was produced by Carey along with Tricky Stewart and Big Jim Wright. Now, except for the tempo, Carey didn't really change it much, and even Mick Jones was pretty happy with the result. The single didn't see a ton of action, which had people worried about the rest of the album. Memoirs of an Imperfect Angel, but the album as a whole did quite well. And now, 
It's time to answer today's trivia question. Back on page two. Remember that, page two, way back then? I asked you about Moby Grape and the fact that the timing of the single releases in 1967 might have had something to do with the pan's poor reception among both radio and retailers at first. It's really as simple as it being a case of too much too soon. You see, Columbia Records made this peculiar decision to release all five singles from the album on the same day. It was basically a weird marketing stunt, but the net result was that Moby Grape became just one more counterculture band, getting huge amounts of promotion. And while it got good reviews and eventually decent sales, the early perception is that Moby Grape was really way overhyped, and only one of the singles managed to reach the charts, that one being this track titled Omaha. Incidentally, Moby Grape got its name from the punchline of the joke, what's big and purple and lives in the ocean. No, I'm not kidding. And that's a full lid on another edition of How Good It Is. If you're enjoying the show, please take the time to share it with someone, maybe even leave a rating somewhere. I have suddenly seen a spike in listeners, so thank you all new people. If you want to get in touch with the show, well, you can email me at howgoodpodcast at gmail.com or... You can follow the show on Twitter or Instagram at How Good It Is. You can also visit, like, and follow the show's Facebook page at facebook.com slash howgooditispod, or you can check out the show's website, howgooditis.com, where you might find a few extra bits. Thanks, as usual, to Podcast Republic for featuring the show. Mwah, mwah, mwah. Oh, I've gotten some nice reviews from Podcast Republic people. Next time around, we are going to find out how good it is when we take, yes, another listener suggestion. A listener suggested look at another set of songs you might not have known were covers. Thanks for listening, and I will talk to you next time. Bye.